Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a multi-church, multi-city movement of truth, love, and community. For information, visit vintagechurchmovement.com. Here is this week's message. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And join me in uh, reciting this one, please. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. And as Montre said, it is exciting because we are two Sundays away from Easter Sunday. If you don't know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And so Palm Sunday, we remember that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and uh, was celebrated, right? Hosanna, son of David. And uh, that begins the week of Holy Week. And then we go into uh, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday. I can't encourage you enough to make it a priority to bring somebody, to invite somebody here for Easter Sunday. We've got a couple of ways that you can do that. You have an invite on your seat. There is a Facebook event as well. And so if you want to invite people via Facebook, you can do that as well. We're going to have an incredible Sunday. We're going to have a brass band with us. We are going to have uh, a V Kids Easter egg hunt in between the gatherings. It's going to be an incredible Day. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in this series called The Good Life. And as we've been looking at each of these Beatitudes, what we've been looking at is how Jesus describes for us what the good life looks like, what it means to live the good life. Another way to talk about the good life is to say the flourishing life, that we would flourish, that we would say life is good. And Jesus really, in many ways, flips the script on this idea of the good life. He says things like, blessed are those who mourn. We would typically say that, right? He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. You just heard in the reading of the text, blessed are those who are persecuted. All these things, none of us would typically say equal the good life. But Jesus says, listen, this is what it looks like to live a life that is good. This is what it looks like to live a life that is flourishing. And what we're looking at today is that life is good when you make peace. You know, life would be so much easier if we didn't have to live with other people, right? <laughs> that, that was it's kind of funny, right? But not funny because it's true, right? Those are the best jokes, right? The ones that are true. 
That's the challenge. You know, one of the things that I thought about as we were singing those songs this, just this, a moment ago, such powerful moments, right? But the thing that I thought about is the easy moments as when we are sitting here with our hands lifted and singing praises to Jesus. Those are the easy moments. The hard moments are when we have to make peace. But guess what? That's worship too, by the way. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Why? Because they shall be called sons or sons and daughters of God. Now, if you're like me and you think about peacemaking, I immediately this week thought about the Nobel Peace Prize. Anybody familiar with that? They give the Nobel Peace Prize out almost every year to someone or some group of individuals who are working to foster peace in our world. And if you think about the Nobel Peace Prize, you might think about uh, groups or people like this, the Red Cross. I don't know if you knew this, but after World War I, the Red Cross received the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in caring for Europe. I think about people like Theodore Roosevelt, who received the Nobel Peace Prize. People like Martin Luther King Jr. for his work in civil rights when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, there might be others that come to mind. And what we again think about when we think about the Nobel Peace Prize is we think about individuals or groups of people who might have stopped a war or provided peace between individuals and countries. And what you might begin to think in your mind is, well, that's fantastic. Thank God I'm not responsible for that, <laughs> right? But what I want you to see this morning is this reality. The way that Scripture demonstrates this to us, the way that Jesus teaches this to us, is that every single one of us are responsible for making peace. Whether the world sees it or not, every single one of us, if we follow Jesus, should be up to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Because Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they will be sons. They will be daughters of God. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Life is good for the peacemaker because we are becoming like God who is our peace. One more time. Life is good for the peacemaker because we are becoming like God who is our peace. Two questions for you to think about this morning. Number one, have you received peace? Now, we have to start there. Because I think in order to be a peacemaker that Jesus calls us to be, blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be sons of God. In order to be a peacemaker, to become a peacemaker, we have to understand and receive peace. Now here's the challenge for us. When we think about peace, we have a particular understanding and definition in mind, right? I mean, you're probably thinking as I talk about peace, Russia and Ukraine, and literally the idea of ceasing conflict between two countries. But what I want you to understand is that the biblical understanding, the way that Jesus understood peace, is it's that and so much more. 
I have probably shared this definition at least a half a dozen times, and you're probably going to hear it at least another half dozen times. From his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga defines peace for us. He talks about peace using the Hebrew word for peace. Everybody say shalom. You go to Israel today and you're greeted by an Israeli, they're going to say shalom to you. It's literally not only their word for peace, but it's their greeting, which by the way, says something, right? If you greet someone with peace, you're saying something to them. Listen to how this author defines shalom. Shalom means this, it's universal flourishing. How about that, huh? I'm ready for that. It's about wholeness. In delight, it is a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied. Every need that you have in life, satisfied. That's shalom. And where natural gifts fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. As its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom in other words. Let's say it together. Ready? is the way things ought to be. When you think about what Jesus says, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, you need to have this understanding of peace in the back of your mind. That the peace that Jesus is saying, this is the kind of peace that we make, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. That's your responsibility. Congratulations, right? That's what we have been called to as followers of Jesus. We were created for shalom. We were created for that kind of peace, to experience it with God, ourselves, others, and our world. Now, we all recognize and acknowledge that in many instances, whether it be in our life or in the lives of others, we are not experiencing shalom. Amen? But listen, you can say amen when you agree, not because you're just like, yeah, I love that idea, that's great. We're not all experiencing the kind of shalom that he talks about, the kind of shalom that the Bible describes. Why? Because shalom was broken with sin. Genesis 3. God created everything. It was very good, he says, at the end of his creation. But the enemy comes in, deceives our human parents, and sin enters the world. And again, here, listen to how Cornelius Plantinga describes sin. We think of it as like we've done something bad, but it's, he describes it like this. Sin is culpable shalom-breaking. So sin is you doing something, me doing something, every single human outside of Jesus doing something where we are breaking shalom. Where God said, listen, I've set up the world like this for it to flourish, for there to be wholeness and delight, and then we come in and break that shalom. And for it to be culpable means we're responsible, means we're guilty of that shalom. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 describes it like this, and by the way, these words are not his words. He's quoting various scriptures when he says this. He says none. Everybody say none. You know what that means? 
It means zero, none, no one, not me, not you. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I think we can close it up for the day. Just go home, right? We leave in a a positive mood, right? I mean, Paul is delivering like a blow to the gut. There's not a single human on the face of the planet that is inherently good. And the reason is because shalom has been broken and we, each and every day of our life, are responsible for continuing to break shalom. Another way to describe this is the phrase total depravity. And what this phrase means is that we're not as sinful as we could be, right? You could be far worse. Thank God you're not, right? But you and I, we are completely sinful. There is not a part of us that has not been impacted and influenced by sin. Our physical Our mental, our emotional, our spiritual, every aspect of who we are has been tainted with sin. We're like this. We're like mirrors. We were created. God created us to reflect Him. That's what it means to be an image bearer, to be made in the image of God. The the Imago Dei. When, When people look at us, what they should see is not just us, but they should see a reflection of God. But what sin did is it took a a rock and it threw it at the mirror. Now you know that sometimes if you break a mirror, the glass doesn't shatter, it just cracks. And when you look at the mirror, what you might see is a reflection, but it's a distorted reflection of whatever you're looking at. And so when you and I, when we look at that mirror, when others look at that mirror, what we see is a broken self. A self where shalom isn't completely as it should be, where we can no longer by ourselves fully and completely reflect God. That's what the Scriptures get at. Here's the reality for you and I, and this is why this is so important, because Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, right? Our sin and our sinfulness incapacitates us from restoring shalom. Because of our sin, we can't restore shalom. And yet Jesus tells us to be peacemakers. So again, how then do we receive peace? Our greatest need for peace is first with God. Remember that. As you're thinking about world peace, as you're thinking about a relationship that you might be in that's broken, there's something going on in your life, don't forget that your greatest need, my greatest need, our greatest need for peace is first with God. And it's incredible to me that the answer is found in the very person that tells us to be peacemakers. 
It's not Christmas, but I think you'll be familiar with this passage in Isaiah 9, verses 6-7, through this prophecy about the birth of Jesus. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? No end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the message of the gospel. You have to understand that there is something in you that separates you from God. You have to understand this. I could try to sugarcoat it and tell you, listen, God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to save you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just that God loves you. The truth is that God does absolutely love you. Amen? He loves you so much that in your sin, he wanted to do something about it. And so he sent his son Jesus, that prince of peace, to come to earth and put on flesh and live a perfect, sinless life, and yet not because of his sin, but because of our sin, go to the cross and die on the cross, taking not only our sin, but the wrath of God that is against our sin, taking that all upon himself and dying. But not staying dead. Amen? Rising from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell. And the way that the Bible describes is that when we, number one, repent, we have to turn away. There has been something in our lives, in my life and in your life, that is keeping us separated, alienated from God. It's called sin. It's called shalom breaking. We have to turn away from that. We have to acknowledge that the way I've been living my life is not the way that God wants me to live my life. That's repentance. And in faith, we turn to the cross of Jesus. We turn to the empty grave of Jesus and we recognize that what he did, he did on my behalf. And we trust in that. Jesus, you saved me on that cross. Thank you for saving me. And then we publicly confess that faith, being buried with Jesus in baptism, coming up out of that water, raised to walk in newness of life. And what the gospel tells us, what the Bible and scripture tells us is that when we repent, believe, because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the work of Jesus out of the tomb, we can be reconciled with God. You ever seen a relationship that's totally torn apart and it comes back together? That's what Jesus did for us. And the incredible thing about the gospel is that this isn't just some arbitrary relationship. This is the creator and his creation. This is God saying, listen, the way it was supposed to be, remember what is shalom? In a nutshell, the way it's supposed to be The way it's supposed to be is for me and you to be in right relationship with God. Jesus comes and he reconciles us with God that we might be made right with him, that we might be able to be in relationship with him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. 
It's so clear here. He says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, why were we far off? Because of our sin. You have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. He had to die for us. Verse 14, for he himself, who's he? Jesus, for he himself is our peace. You are not peace in and of yourself. You cannot bring yourself back to God. You cannot clean yourself up enough for God to love you and to take you in. It is Jesus who is our peace. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility between us and God and, and we'll get to this in just a moment, the audience that Paul's writing to is a Jewish and Gentile audience. Jesus is saying, listen, the dividing wall that Jesus broke down wasn't just between humanity and God, it's between all races, Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 15, by doing what? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Doing what? So making peace. Restoring shalom. And that he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, every one of us in this room to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You're not going to be able to make peace with anyone if you don't first have peace with God. And it is impossible for you in your own power to make peace with God. We receive peace through Jesus who is our peace. And I want you to catch this. When we receive peace through Jesus, we become children of God. What does Jesus say in the Beatitude? Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they shall be sons, daughters, children of God. So what Jesus is telling us is it has to first begin by us receiving peace. Then God takes us in, adopts us, and makes us his children. And then, all in the Beatitudes, what we've been talking about is the kingdom of God. This now, not yet, that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but it's still coming. When we become children of God, then the kingdom comes. You understand that? That every time someone walks away from darkness and turns to light and follows Jesus, the kingdom of God inches further into our world. That's why this is so important. That's why Easter matters. That's why you inviting your friends, telling your coworkers about Jesus, praying for people matters. Because the kingdom of God is about turning people from darkness to light, about them recognizing their need to be reconciled with God and that they understand that Jesus is the only way. We have to have peace, and the only way we can have peace is through Jesus. But Jesus doesn't talk just about receiving peace. He talks about making peace. So the second question is this, are you making peace? 
Again, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons, daughters, children of God. Now, Jesus does a lot with peacemaking. He teaches on peacemaking. If you go just a few verses in to Matthew chapter 5, listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He taught it, but he didn't just teach peacemaking. Jesus modeled peacemaking. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, this is right at the end of Holy Week, late on Thursday night or early on Good Friday, this is what happens. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and then Judas comes to betray him. And look at how Jesus handles this situation. Jesus said to him, friend, he's talking to Judas, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, that is, we know from the other gospels, Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, listen, just be honest. That's you, right? You're like Peter. Oh, nobody, nobody touching Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Peter's about to go to war for Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will do what? Perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, listen, if we want to stop all of this right now, I can do it pretty quickly. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus modeled peacemaking. I mean, Jesus himself, right, could have called down legions. He could have praised Peter. Thank you for defending me. But instead, he says, put your sword away. He doesn't call down the legions. In peace, he goes. Jesus taught peace. Jesus modeled peace. So then how do we make peace? I'm about to read to you what I think is one of the most difficult scriptures in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. Paul has spent the entirety of the book of Romans, his letter to the church at Rome, unpacking the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus has reconciled us. And then in verse 12, he begins the practical part of his letter. And so everything that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12 is because of the gospel. Because Jesus has given us peace. Look at what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Okay, that's easy. I've got that, right? I'm kidding, right? Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Just stop real quick. Some of you need to read that one again. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, most difficult scripture in all of the Bible. If possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't know about you, that is the most dif- difficult scripture I have ever read in my life. Because what Paul is saying, here's an application of the gospel. An application of the gospel is this. As best as you can, live at peace with every single person God puts in your path. But God, I want to smite them. Paul says, no. Live at peace. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, does this not sound familiar? As if Paul is quoting somebody. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become over do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Do you want to know what it looks like to make peace? It's everything Paul just said. Good night. If our world could just read a few of those verses and take it in context and apply it, might our world be different? So we take what Paul has said and then we begin to think about peace in this way. We should work to make peace personally. We should work to make peace interpersonally. And we should work to make peace systemically. I believe as Christians, this is what you and I, this is what we are called to. If we have received peace from the Lord, here's what you and I will struggle with and deal with. It will be taking that peace that God has given us and believing it and living in it. And so I shared this with you a while back from John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. I think this is a great way to begin to live out and make peace with yourself. Okay, number one, what's the thought, feeling, and or sensation? Begin to identify that. Well, I think I'm a terrible human being. I'm living in shame. I'm living in guilt, okay? Number two, what's the lie beneath it that reveals your attachment? I don't believe that God loves me, okay? Number three, what's the truth? Let's just start with John 3, 16. For God so loved the what? World. Are you a part of the world? The answer is yes, even if you don't believe that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would perish, well, would not perish, but be- or whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So you begin to work this out in your heart, in your life, to live out, to apply the peace that Jesus has already given you. Some of our issues in life, and I'm speaking from experience, right, is not that we don't have the peace that God has given us. It's that we don't believe the peace he's given us and we don't apply the peace he's given us. Some of you are looking for peace in all the wrong places when he's given it to you and he's saying, listen, if you'll just take it and use it. 
It's like you saying, listen, my teeth are disgusting. And I say, here's a toothbrush and toothpaste. And then you don't use the toothbrush and toothpaste. Right? What should you do if your teeth are dirty? Well, I'm concerned. Very concerned, right? Brush your teeth. If Jesus has given you peace, what do you do? You take it and you apply it. But number two, we should be working to make interpersonal peace. Man, this one is tough. It's hard to live with people. It's even harder to live with family. Amen? Oh, there's some agreement in the room. Listen, there's some unhealthy responses when you and I have conflict. There's things like flight. Rather than deal with it, you run away from it. You just don't want to have to deal with it at all. There's things like denial. Wait, what problem? I don't have a problem. You don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. Everything's fine. Everything's perfect. <laughs> no, you got a problem, right? I got a problem. Assault. When you begin to assault people physically, verbally, emotionally, that is not a healthy way to resolve conflict. Litigation, especially among Christians. The Bible says something about not taking another Christian to court. And the worst of all, probably murder, which sadly in our world we see all the time. Unhealthy ways to work through conflict. But there are healthy ways to work through conflict. Things like overlooking. Now, you might think that's denial, but sometimes you overlook an offense. It's a way to forgive. You overlook that offense. There's reconciliation. can't tell you how many times there's been a conflict in the church where I sit people down and I'm saying, listen, you don't have to be best friends, but you do have to recognize that you're brothers and sisters in Jesus and that something has to change. There's negotiation. You might have to begin to negotiate. Okay, we disagree on these things, but here's where we can begin to agree. Mediation, arbitration. This is where you bring somebody in, a third party. That is not unbiblical, by the way. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 18. That sometimes you need a third party, someone that is trusted by both parties to help you work through a conflict. And then even accountability. That you don't let someone walk off the ledge, but you call them back in. There are healthy ways to deal with conflict. Yesterday was just an awesome morning. Some of our men were, were with us. We, we had a combined men's event with United Fellowship. Very different church from us. Very different church. But just an incredible body of believers and Pastor Brandon Bhutan, who is uh, one of Mark's mentors and be, has become a dear friend of mine, both of our men's groups kind of came together and we spent the morning talking about brokenness. And I was as vulnerable as I've ever been yesterday with some of our men talking about brokenness in my own life and talking about family. And one of the most difficult relationships that I have in my own personal life is with my father. I, dad, my dad has lived with me twice. <laughs> Those have been some of the most difficult moments in my life. But beginning to work through peace. Where my dad and I, we don't get along. We don't see to eye to eye. He's not a believer. I am a believer. 
And as I engage that conflict, I have to keep going back to Romans 12, 18. If at all possible, as much as it depends on me, live at peace with dad. You know what that means? That means for me that there's only so much that I can do, but there's a lot that I can do. And the excuse for you and I is that, ah, they're never going to change, or that's never going to end, or, and then you just assume that there's never going to be any peace in that relationship or in your life. But that's not the way that Scripture defines and understands this kind of peace and this kind of shalom. We're called to make peace interpersonally. Number three, we're called to make systemic peace. If anything gets me in trouble today, it's going to be this one, okay? So just... Be prepared, I'm ready. When the, pan- when the pandemic began, I started listening to all kinds of sorts of things about uh, the racial conflict and about the pandemic and about all of these things going on. And I'm just thinking to myself, what in the world is happening? Right? And one of the uh, pastors, theologians that I, I listen to a lot and I follow a lot because he's so wise, his name's Tim Keller, he's a former pastor in New York City. And one of the things that he shared with me that I just thought was just incredibly wise and insightful is he talked about peace in scripture and what he said he's like listen peace in scripture should upset democrats and it should upset republicans because the scriptures are neither republican nor are they democrat and what he began to outline are the things that the early church was about and he said these sorts of things and i think for you and i We should be doing things in our lives as individuals, as a church, as a country to make peace in these areas. Number one, racial reconciliation. It's part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, to work out racial reconciliation. Why do you think yesterday the men of vintage got together with an all-black church Because we want to be about racial reconciliation. Number two, care for the poor and suffering. You and I, we should go out of our way to care for those who are hurting. I can't tell you how many bills in the last two years we've paid out of benevolence. And you might look at things like fill the fridge and be like, can't all those people get a job? And let me tell you, it's not your responsibility to judge whether or not they have a job or not. What Jesus said is it's your job to feed them and to clothe them and to love them. So as followers of Jesus, we should be caring for the poor and caring for the suffering. At the same time, we should be about the sanctity of life. You know, in the early church, it wasn't necessarily abortion, but it was infanticide. Where if someone had a a baby that they didn't want, do you know what they did? They literally left it out in the cold to die. Now, that kind of ethic carries over to the whole abortion debate in our country. That every single person from the moment of conception to the moment of death has worth and value. Do you know what that means? Yes, that means we fight against abortion. But it also means that we should have some opinions and some views about the death penalty. It means we should have some opinions and views about euthanasia. It should mean that we care for mothers who are single moms It should mean that we advocate for foster care and adoption. That's the sanctity of life, and the early church in Scripture talked about that. I mean, should we be about the sexual counterculture? 
I know in our day and age right now that there are things in our culture that says this is right and this is wrong. But I'm telling you, in Scripture, there is clarity on sexuality and gender identity. And you can either be cool with culture or you can follow Scripture and be, guess what, what the early Christians were, counter-cultural. Lastly, the early, the early church, the early Christians were about forgiveness and reconciliation. If we're known for anything, my God, I pray that we're known for forgiveness and reconciliation. That people wouldn't look at Vintage Church and be like, you know what? Those people hate each other. That's what's wrong with a lot of churches, is it not? The world looks from the outside in and be like, I don't want to be a part of those people. People wrestling with their faith right now, have you noticed that most of them don't have a problem with Jesus? They have a problem with the church. Now, here's the thing. Before you get very upset with anything I just said, listen, Pastor Brick and I, we had a church history professor in seminary that used to say something. I don't remember anything from the class, but I remember this. He said, church life is messy. And that's probably the truest thing I learned in seminary. Church life is messy. You know why? Because we're messy. That's why peace is so hard. Because I'm messed up. And you are messed up. You got so much baggage that you can't carry. And guess what? I've got so much baggage that I can't carry. And the easy thing to do, listen, this is, this, hear me out on this. This is so true. The easy thing to do is to paint everything in black and white and say, well, listen, there's no room for any gray. It is black and it is white. Jesus said, this is sin and this is not sin. This is the way we're supposed to live. And listen, there are categories in Scripture that are black and white. Jesus, I think, saw things in black and white, but he also recognized that people are messy. There was a reason the Pharisees, the religious leaders, could not stand Jesus. It wasn't because what Jesus believed. They believed the same thing, by the way. It's the way Jesus treated people. So Jesus could look at someone who was sinful, call out their sin, and yet still love them. And by the way, not just say he loves them, but that person actually feels the love of Jesus. So as we think about these systemic issues and these interpersonal issues and these personal issues, listen, this kind of thing is not going to be easy. Yes, I want you to hold to the truth of Scripture, but I want you to love people like Jesus loves people. When we make peace, we restore shalom. And when we restore shalom, get what Jesus is saying here, we are becoming like God. I'm not telling you you're God. That's a terrible idea, right? But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they will be sons. They will be daughters. They will be children of God. It's just not that Jesus brings you into his family. 
But as you have received peace and as you begin to make peace, this incredible thing that the Holy Spirit of God does in your heart and your life, he actually begins to change your nature and your character into God's. And all of a sudden, you're becoming and beginning to look like your father who makes peace. That's what we're called to do. We're called to restore shalom. And if you know Jesus, you have a part to play in that restoration and you can restore shalom. My prayer for each one of us as we walk out of this building today is not that we'll think about people like Theodore Roosevelt and Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela. Yes, we should honor those people because they've done incredible work. But my prayer is that we wouldn't look to them and say, well, those are the peacemakers. I'm going to leave peace up to them. Rather, instead, I pray that we would look at ourselves if we follow Jesus and we would say, listen, peace is up to me. Jesus has given me peace that I can restore peace. I have a responsibility to be a peacemaker. Have you received peace? And if you have, are you making peace? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that we have the right to come before you, the privilege to come before you because your son Jesus has made peace on our behalf. God, peace is such a hard thing because everywhere we look, it seems like it's not there. But I pray that each one of us, God, would take steps to receive peace and to make peace today. So help us now, Father, as we respond to you. We love you. Thank you that you love us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.